0: Hello, and welcome to this very special holiday episode of Floor 9. I'm your host, Ryan Miller, and today I'm joined by the entire IPG Media Lab team to fondly reminisce on 2023 and review some of the trends in tech that define the year that was. There's been much activity in the innovation sphere in the last 12 months, and no, I'm not talking about the one in the Strip in Vegas. You know, Fortnite and Roblox took one step closer to recognizing their metaverse ambitions, advanced wearable technology accelerated remote patient monitoring, web three spiral continued, highlighted by the demise of SBF and FTX. Exploration of the next frontier continued to flourish with SpaceX launching nearly a hundred starships. And yet, none of these topics cracked the lab's key trends for 2023, highlighting just how busy of year 2023 was in media and tech. So first Standing at 5.11 from Brown University and making his Floor 9 debut, I brought in the Director of Partnerships from the IPG Media Lab, Tom Trudeau, my partner in crime, to talk about the first topic that we'll be covering, and that's the rise of generative AI. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here, Ryan. So we're honored to have you. Um, I got. I hope you've got restaurant-grade oven mitts ready because you've certainly got the hottest topic of 2023 in generative AI. Um, you know, The application of this technology is extremely diverse. It covers a broad spectrum of application, ranging from automation to co-creation. So Tom, I'm hoping that you could help us by telling us a little bit more about the landscape's key players. Who are they? What do they do? And are they coming for the job? Are they coming for the world?
1: Yeah. So this is really the innovation of the last year or so, dating back to late 2022 when ChatGPT launched. And so there's a lot to say, I'm going to try to do it on a natural 1.25x speed out of respect for our listeners' time. In terms of the key players that you asked about, Ryan, obviously number one is OpenAI. Originally, they were a cute little little, little non-profit. Its focus was on research, but cash rules everything around me. And its consumer-facing chat GPT was such a hit that it's now racing towards building commercialized products. So they're the undisputed leader in the space, fueled in part by a charismatic CEO, and of course their strategic partnership with Microsoft which gets their model into the hands of Microsoft Teams users, for example. But on the other hand, a- OpenAI is bored, and their authority may make developers building on their tools a little bit nervous because it was reported recently that they will retain quite a bit of power, which is a surprise to me given all the drama around Sam Altman's firing. Mm. Number two in the space is Google. They consider themselves an OG, in an AI, and they have massive data and compute resources. They have diverse AI products, and arguably its biggest strength is the large user base on which to integrate AI into products and services. Don't underestimate how hard it is to get people to actually do something new, and Google in that regard is far ahead. However, they are seen by many as being slow or overcautious. They're caught flat-footed when ChatGPT first launched, and the recent launch of Gemini, which is its new AI hotness, seems to have Mm. reinforced that perception that they're feeling the heat. Some people thought that they overstated its capabilities in a demo. Google's in a tricky spot, though, because they're trying to thread this needle by innovating without hurting its core business model. For example, if Google in the future can give users just one perfect answer using a powerful generative AI instead of the dozen of blue links that we get today, how does Google then serve ads? And what incentive do publishers have to create good internet content if Google's cutting out the middleman, deliverizing this sort of synthesized answer? It's a fascinating spot to be on. Number three is a group of open-source AI models. This group, which includes Facebook's parent company, Meta. One day, we'll just say Meta, but that day is not today. It (laughs) provides readily available AI tools and frameworks for basically anyone, developers, researchers, to build upon. And there are many who believe that open-source will actually outpace private institutions eventually through democratization of AI development, rapid innovation, through contributions and collaboration. It's all very kumbaya. But without the immense scale and resources of a Microsoft or Google, there could be slower adoption of open source AI models. Lastly, some are concerned that the US regulation could also slow down the pace of open source models. Red tape can be slow and expensive. Then there's everyone else. This is the world of AI startups, big and small, that you may have heard about from time to time. They tend to focus more on specialized solutions, which makes them agile. It's more efficient to build an AI model trained for one purpose. And they focus on specific niches and applications. For example, I love 11 Labs, which does great AI voice solutions. Elon Musk's Grok apparently does very well summarizing recent news and events because they have access to, to data on Twitter X. On the other hand, limited resources compared to the tech giants makes it difficult to compete on data and compute power. But a company like Anthropic is actually countering that by partnering with Amazon. So presumably they hope to form an alliance that's sort of similar to that
0: OpenAI Microsoft one and expect to see more such alliances in the future. And and Tom, when we're talking about some of these more niche solutions, are we talking startups in the numbers of like tens, hundreds, thousands? How many of these like creative pop-up more agile solutions are we talking about? There are thousands of AI startups,
1: most of which we will never hear hear of because (laughs) ChatGPT is primed to destroy all of them with the the, the rollout of their um, GPT store, which
0: we'll talk about Mm. in a moment. All right. So Tom, I just want to walk back quickly before we move into the ChatGPT store and talk about uh, Sam Altman's brief dismissal from OpenAI. Do you care to elaborate on that a little bit and talk about what ultimately brought him back to the company after a brief hiatus?
1: Well, I, I don't really want to speculate on all of the all the details of what brought about the firing and, and plenty of ink has been spilled on that topic. I think it's worth mentioning, though, I do believe that it will be a net positive for the industry. Mm. I think a lot of people probably thought that OpenAI was running away in the AI space, and I think what it did was expose the flaws of their structure. I mentioned the power that the board retains today. I think you can debate the merits of that, whether it's good for society for that board to have that type of influence, but undeniably, if you're a developer today or even just a, con- a consumer of their products and services, do you want to go all in on a, on a uh, company that is unstable and fundamentally could be have their CEO reversed by a board? So I think what it means is it, it lends credence to this, this idea that certainly people at Amazon and Google are trying to put forth, which is that you need diversity. You need to have, have multiple solutions in place that are flexible, that aren't reliant on a sort of a volatile board. So I think ultimately the drama will be good for competition and therefore good for consumers.
0: Speaking of the consumers, how do you see this technology impacting the people's lives in the year to come? I think the number of people engaged with AI in 2023 feels exponentially greater than the year prior. So as familiarity increases, do you see adoption ticking up along with it? Will increased adoption lead to new use cases? I know you mentioned the GPT store. Yeah, I mean, how Gen AI is going to
1: be used day to day is the million dollar question. Or if you believe Wall Street's projections, a trillion dollar question more and more people day to day are using ChatGPT, mm. which has over 100 million users for things like brainstorming, researching, coding. The same is true to a lesser extent for Google's Bard, which is becoming more competitive and in my experience sometimes better. Creators are using generative AI to become more prolific and efficient. They're leveraging models that are multimodal, which perhaps is the word of the year for 2024, it means they're they're trained on more than one type of data like images, text, video, code, three models, etc. So for example, you can imagine you take one piece of video content, you use AI to edit it, cut it up into multiple pieces of short form content, translate it into multiple languages, and even turn it into a blog post. It's, if that's not a life hack, then I don't know what is. And meanwhile, more people are going to become creators as things like text to music and video will make it really easy for untalented people like me to make mm. these professional sounding songs or realistic video, and that's without the benefit of an instrument or a camera. So expect to see more UGC than ever, which is exactly what we need in this world, more content. I mentioned OpenAI's GPT store. We expect that in 2024 at some point that will roll out. And then that's going to allow everyday users to build these sort of specialized tools, train on whatever data they want to include. So Mm. you can imagine I'm a baseball nerd. I could make a custom GPT available designed to analyze baseball prospects uh, using my proprietary model, maybe some industry ranks that I believe in maybe some publications that are publicly available. And together, these are, this GPT store could be the first real threat to the App Store that Google and Apple dominate today. Um, I think we'll, we'll start to see the beginnings of generative AI giving life to wearable devices, like Meta's Ray-Ban. If you're brave enough to put it on your face and go out in public wearing it wait, with one of these conspicuous devices, I think mass adoption of wearables is probably
0: more of a 2030 thing. Before I specifically dive into the marketing implications and how people in our role would ultimately harness this power, I want to touch on something that I thought was very interesting that you just said that this GPT store could potentially be a rival to the App Store and the Play Store one day. Do you think we're at a point where we have enough people developing these kinds of experiences using artificial intelligence right now that we can reach a level of saturation where there'd be enough apps, if you will, for people to go out and download and interact with and get familiar with at this point? Or do you think we're like five, 10 years out from that? So I think the
1: last decade w- with, with some tech toys was about entertainment. You know, you can think of the ver- some VR headsets. And to me, what is driving generative AI technology and hardware is utility. I think that if enough people can create enough convenient tools that make our lives easier and faster, that the demand will follow. And when there is demand from a user perspective, be appealing to developers who want to come in and build these products and tools. And the fact that I've used them myself and I'm, you know, you can have these sort of no-code solutions, it means that almost anybody can develop these pretty easily. So I think that the the ease of use will also be a, a boon for OpenAI. So yes, I, I, I think it's a real threat and it's not sort of speculative or, or just a pie in the sky to imagine that it could represent the first real threat to the app store.
0: Yeah. And then just to close the loop on the point that I was initial bringing into is just like, how do we ultimately leverage this technology in our role as marketers? Is it really about making our lives easier, faster, more efficient in the processes that we can automate? Or is it harnessing the power of it to use some of the co-creation capabilities that you were alluding to, to, you know, fill the never ending log that we have to get through?
1: Yeah, I think it's early days right now, the burden will be on developers of these large models to prove it's actually safe. That's from a brand perspective, a legal perspective to leverage their tools. And right now, I think understandably brands are nervous, especially larger brands. Uh, Yesterday, we shared internally that that Fortune 500 companies in a recent survey, nearly a third said that IP was their biggest concern about the use of generative AI. So you might wonder, like, what what does that mean? IP is their concern. Well, if you're an agency and you want to accelerate your creative process, maybe cut some costs along the way using some of those cool generative AI tools that you and I have seen, Ryan, in terms of developing new images, you want to be sure that you're not going to get sued. You want to be sure that the data that the product you use was trained on licensed data. And right now, you can't say that in most instances. If you're using an AI-generated model, and and when I say model here, I mean the models who pose for pictures, to save money in in your creative there's, there's not only the ethical consideration of I'm, I'm not you know, hiring an indiv- individual, but again, is is Cindy Crawford, because my model references are all three decades old, is she going to sue me? So some enterprise solutions like Adobe and Getty, they're trying to differentiate by representing that their tools are are 100% legit, so they're based on own data. For example, Getty is partnering with a company called Runway to power AI-generated videos. That's all using licensed materials, according to them. So... Absent that sort of um, maturity within the space, right now, what we're seeing is brands using generative AI to brainstorm, you know, ChatGPT and BART are great at things like writing first drafts. Some brands have rolled out their own chatbots. I just saw a dating app is going to have like a wingman chatbot, figure out, respond to to private DMs. And we're seeing a number of sort of boutique creative agencies pop up that specialize in these AI-powered activations and again if that's interest of interest to brands Ryan you and I can name names and make some intros cuz there are a number of agencies that are further along than others in in that respect but of course the pace at which everything moves means by this time next month you know everything i said could be wrong
0: And that's true, but you still need a brand that has the willingness to kind of dive in and be the first mover in this space and ultimately test the waters of what the limits of this technology ultimately are. So even though there might be some significant changes in the landscape over the next month or so, and even when we come back from CES, everything that you said might not be true anymore. But it, like I said, brands just have to get out there and experiment if they ultimately want to be considered a first mover in this space. Well, thank you, Tom, for joining us to chat a little bit more about generative AI. I'm sure that there are going to be uh, many more questions in the coming year about how brands can ultimately leverage this technology going forward. So stay close to your phone. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. All right. Diving into our next trend, we're going to evaluate the streaming landscape shift, ads, rebuilding, and interactive ads. Joining us to dive a bit deeper on this trend is the Richard Yao the Lab's Associate Director of Strategy. What's up, Richard? Welcome to the show.
2: Hello, hello. I'm always on the show, but you don't get to hear me every episode. So this is truly a holiday special. Happy to be here.
0: We got our producer-in-chief here on the mic for uh, that rare occasion. But want to give a little plug before we dive into our back and forth, my friend, and let our listeners know that if they're enjoying the conversation, that they can find a companion piece crafted by the one and only Richard Yao on the IPG Media Lab's Medium page. So go ahead, check that out. And now that we got that out of the way, I must ask you a very, very serious question. Are the so-called streaming wars finally o- over?
2: Yep. This year, we can say with absolute confidence that the streaming world that has been reaching on for the past decade in Hollywood has finally over. And guess what, Ryan? What? No one is a winner. Surprise, surprise. There's actually no winner. I mean, you could argue that Netflix is one by default just because they still have the biggest global subscription base. But... At least the sentiment in Hollywood has turned not just against Netflix, but also against almost the entire subscription-based, ad-free streaming model that everybody has been chasing for the past decade. This year, of course, there is some macroeconomic trend that sort of pushes people to tighten their belts and. We saw massive round of layoffs in Hollywood from Disney to Warner Brother, and then everybody's sort of looking at their existing business model and sort of realized they still haven't got any closer of reaching Netflix level of global scale, which is what they need to effectively monetize the massive cost of producing all those streaming content against, Right? Without the scale, you can't really effectively monetize those content. So second, you just we see money, and the streaming model is already proven to be of a lower profitability than the typical, you know, cable TV bundle. And we see that sort of manifesting in so many different ways, right? We see over some of the show, even HBO show gets taken off the streaming service; they just gone, or they will resurface on TruBe or some sort of other ad-supported service later for people to watch for free, but then actually monetizing again through advertisement rather than just regular good old streaming. And then we also had to mention the double strike that Hollywood went through historically this summer, right? A big impetus behind those double strike is that in the streaming, in the shift towards streaming model, a lot of the creator, writer, actor, or anyone in the crew got a bit screwed over by the lack of streaming residuals. And that's a big sticking point for the for the double track. And the result has been an increase in terms of what kind of residual and loyalty payment that the behind-the-scenes crew and also the actors can receive from the studio. So it's really a bit of a growing pain, in a way. We're sort of in a maturing stage of this sort of streaming model. As a result, the streaming was over. Everybody's trying to re- recalibrate their strategy right now.
0: So talking about the recalibration of that strategy, are we going to move more back to a phase of bundling after this decade of unbundling or so maybe some of the approaches like what Verizon is offering with that Netflix and max bundle for, I believe it's $10. Are those some of the strategies we're going to start seeing employed in this next era of the streaming wars? I don't even have a clever name to
2: call it. I don't know. Post, post post-war reality. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, definitely. we Probably see a lot more rebundling. Not necessarily quite like remaking the cable bundle in streaming mm. So, definitely heard some analysts trying to make that a thing. I think it will still be a lot more flexible and uh, a la carte than the good old cable TV. But we could see a lot more consolidation going on. Even this year, we already saw some movement toward that direction. I right? you see, mm. Discovery and Mac sort of bundling all type of content on the one streaming service, and even with seeing news, live news being bundled into the streaming service with no extra cost right now.
0: You think that's a reaction to the upcoming election cycle?
2: Could be. Yeah, I mean that would be you know probably top of mind for a lot of people next year. But we also see a lot of more sports content slowly moving to OTT. Which Mm. is interesting, right? If you think about what is really holding this live cable bundle together, this last bit of glue, it's really sports. And you know, increasingly they are popping up on Apple TV Plus and Prime Video, right? All those exciting things happening, and not to mention, you know, of course, Showtime is also being bundled into Paramount Plus. And also you can see CVS live events on there. So it's a lot of like industry consolidation going on, not to mention some of the smaller studio might just, you know, get swallowed up by the big five uh, studio right now. And also mm. a lot of them realize actually the easiest way for us to make a bit of money, the content they produce is to license it back to Netflix. Let, mm. This year we saw Suits being a breakout show on Netflix just because a lot of people just rediscovered really that show that used to be on one of the, I believe it was called USA, uh, one of the cable Canada NBC Universal used to own.
0: That's how you know you're a content king when you know Suits' is original network.
2: I don't know about being a content king, but I did used to watch a lot of cable TV and somehow that little fact stuck out to me. But yeah, and overall, we'll definitely see a lot more incentives of moving existing subscribers mm. to sort of more as supported services, or at least use that as a way to get more people to start using more streaming service. And, I mean, the viewing time is not going to drastically increase, not mention, at the end of the day, the entertainment industry, especially Hollywood, is competing against the like of TikTok and not mention the future of AI-generated content, right? That's all sort of looming large in the Hollywood debate. But at least need to figure out a, a good distribution model that makes sense to actually make
0: money for the industry so we're talking about moving to a more ad supported tiers we're talking about consolidation what does this ultimately mean for us as advertisers are we going to get at least some new technology out of this are we bringing more dynamism to the consumer who's sitting on the couch and sitting through four or five episodes in a row
2: (laughs) well we used to say like the Swift the shift towards sort of ad-free streaming is going to be a loss for the industry, because you know TV used to be such a primary mass media channel. Right. The advertisers, you know, usually a big chunk of the media budget goes to TV. In the past few years, you argued still that the most valuable audience are paying for an ad-free streaming experience. That have not really changed, but at least we're seeing a uh, fast growth in the support supported streaming tier and that will help advertisers at least reach more audience through new app formats that's sort of like more trackable more targetable and more engaging through their
3: mm.
2: interactivity right you can mm. do the easy way of slapping a QR code on onto a commercial and then you get people to scan it and buy it amazon has tried that peacock is trying the same thing but that's sort of the starting point. We're starting to see more sophisticated way of trying to get people to engage with the connected TV ad, and that's something I think a lot of the uh brands will actually benefit from start to experiment and sort of try out the different ad, ad units that different, you know, streaming companies are coming out. It just at the end of the day it's always wise to follow the audience's attention and if you if you successfully got their eyeball, then you definitely want to want them to actively engage with your branded content. And we're seeing this shift from live TV to streaming being the perfect conduit for that.
0: Exactly. Adding shopability and playability to your ad experience is easier than ever before. You don't have to work with any of the cable providers in order to add that kind of functionality to the experience working through any of these OTT networks makes it a lot more seamless. So I think that there's going to be a lot more... Uh, I don't want to call them enjoyable, but at least more engaging ad experiences in the near future for consumers, as I said. Thanks again for joining us on the podcast today and stepping in front of the curtain from your role as producer and joining us on the mic. Of oh,
2: course. How did you tell me?
0: Jumping from the big screen of OTT and cable television and moving to the smaller screen of social, want to talk about our next trend, which is the social media pivot, decentralization and social commerce. And with that, I'd love to welcome our VP Director of Strategy at the Lab, Chelsea Freitas. Hello, Chelsea. Hi, Ryan. X threads and blue sky, oh my. Where to begin when it comes to the wonderful world of social, Chelsea? I want to start by asking you to offer a few words on the demise of the platform formerly known as Twitter, or comment on the general landscape volatility that we're seeing in the social sphere today.
4: Yeah, I mean that's the perfect setup, right? Like there's have been such major social pivots this year, mm. really just propelling distrust and but also these shifts are shifts are creating new opportunities for other entrants in the marketplace. But it's first and foremost important to just highlight that more than ever consumers are questioning their relationship to social. It you know, it's really gone from leisurely to become an obligation to like Even in the future, it's no longer even going to be, you know, a safe expectation that everyone's going to be on these platforms, like where we used to engage with people.
0: When did it become so much pressure?
4: Oh, the pressure. I mean, yeah, right. We all, (laughs) thank God we have a break coming up. Yeah. So with this reckoning, like people are above all reevaluating their time. And part of this crumbling began with Twitter, or shall we just say X, X which has just been slowly declining in usage. I think in general, since Elon Musk took over the company and the change of power, there was a lot going on and it was even difficult for people who like us are in the industry to follow. So you can imagine what that's like for like the everyday consumer or social user. So on top of like implementing new company ethos and you know mm. these mass layoffs that you see from the outside and just general safety changes, there were other things specific to the platform like limiting visible tweets or the discussion around preventing blocking. All of this you know, in combination with the change in ethos and the change in power, was right. really contributing to the decline. I think in July it was reported by Elon himself that uh, ad revenue was down something like fifty percent. So Twitter was definitely you know the big headline of the year, the big story. But it wasn't just X. We'll say I'll, I'll switch over now to X as a how formally. formal
0: of
4: you. <laughs> yeah, let's be formal. So there's other things that are worth highlighting, like even Reddit, which is you know the beloved platform by mm. users. There was quite a revolt in protest to the new API policies and a lot of very you know, typically active subreddits went dark in protest. And then there's the looming TikTok ban, like will they or won't they? Even that one, which is, I, I know for me personally, like a rabbit hole of escape, even that <laughs> has a little bit of ickiness to it because we don't quite know the safety of the platform.
0: Hmm. So what does that mean when you're trying to earn trust in an era of rampant misinformation online? What
4: does it mean? I mean, first and foremost, we know consumers are really going to be more discerning than ever. At least let's hope so, right? We're entering an election year. There's only going to be more misinformation. And AI, for better or worse, is a key factor here. There's going to be a lot of fuel added to the fire. But I think from a consumer's perspective, we will see this shift toward more private servers, things like Discord, where consumers can have more of these niche groups And I think in general, we're going to see people just be more choiceful, um, really gravitating to more niche groups where they can control the conversation and feel that genuine sense of community. It's like I said before, it's really no longer a given that you can reach people on these mass platforms.
0: And was it the implosion of Twitter slash X that ultimately ushered in this era of these more niche platforms or this decentralized era under the activity pub protocol that like threads, Mastodon, Blue Sky are using, or was that shift just going to happen regardless?
4: I think the shift was bubbling up regardless, but it really came to a head this year. I Mm. think there's been a lot of discussion around decentralized social and the key opportunities of a world where things just work more seamlessly in the future and the users do have more power. So I think this has been bubbling up under the surface as this becomes more of a reality. I mean, we're not quite there yet, but really the demise of X only spearheaded a, a lot of our forward thinkers and our early adapters to usher in these new platforms. Like a lot of people shifted from Twitter to Mastodon, Mm. um, or even more text-based alternatives like an Artifact.
0: So you're talking about like Artifact and Discord and Mastodon, and like it might seem very difficult for advertisers to think about an approach to reaching consumers in these spaces. How do you ultimately organize and foster community with what seems a million different ways to share your message?
4: This is the great dilemma of our days. (laughs) I mean, we really learned this year that community cannot hinge on a social platform alone. Mm. You no longer, you know, it's no longer that mentality of like, if you build it, they will come, especially in this digital space. I think when it comes to brands, it's really about facilitating community and incentivizing that participation from your brand fans. It's giving them the power and the voice to the users. And that can be done in really creative ways. It can be as simple as like fostering you know, a genuine sense of conversation and community. Mm. It can be incentivizing them, whether it's promotions or whether it's even giving them an impact and a voice. We've seen a couple of things done successfully on existing platforms, like private Instagram groups for beauty lovers, where they can really have a voice and a say in testing products. And it really gives them that impact and feel. they have, to have a sense of identity toward the brand. And then beyond that, I think this is an era where, Brands really need to drive distinction. The brands Mm. of our days that are standing out are things like, you know, I love to talk about liquid death right? They've created such a unique brand and fostering that sense of creative community where they can stand out in social and they can generate that genuine conversation because they've set themselves apart from, you know, the uh, the Aquafinas and the Dasanis of the world.
0: Yeah. and I'd then when murder, it co- murder your thirst is a pretty aggressive slogan.
4: Yeah. Death to plastic, right? <laughs> like I think they know who their audience is and they're catering to them. And it's lovely to see from like a strategic and audience perspective. And then just as we talk about tech, the other way in is to modernize those loyalty offerings, Mm. right? Like really think strategically and think from a lens of innovation about how we can offer new loyalty incentives and, and in order to continue to foster engagement and keep people coming back more than just that initial sign-in.
0: Reward your most passionate brand evangelists for taking action on your behalf.
4: Exactly. Glad to hear you're listening, Ryan.
0: Yeah. So I'd be remiss not to ask our resident retail expert about the rise in social commerce. Know that platforms have moved away from live commerce pop uh, tactics that are popular in APAC. So what has taken hold in North America and our side of the world more generally?
4: uh I know. It's like, want, want, live shopping, mm-hmm. totally stagnant. Like we're kind of waiting to see something wow us. I- and I'm speaking for the general population here. But I think right now, the, the little sparks of joy when it comes to social commerce, it's still going to be those collabs, those community focused opportunities, whether it's a strategic collaboration with an influencer, mm. or it's identifying those strategic partners for your brand. Right now, in this moment, we're still seeing creators have a lot of power. I believe like community is happening in the comment section.
0: So as we close out this section, I uh, dare you to make a prediction on what the social landscape will look like in the next five years, if you're brave enough?
4: Uh, I mean, challenge accepted, right? (laughs) Like above all, I just want to emphasize this shift. Younger consumers don't feel that obligation. They don't feel the obligation to be reachable on mass platforms or the obligation to have their you know, their social handle on across every single space. I think we're going to see more niche communities and we're going to see people be members of many communities. And then I think, you know, this is the lab here. So let's say it, whatever platform has the strongest on-ramp to the media where we spend our most time, we're going to see a group of users flock to those spaces as well.
0: Mm. Well, thank you again, Chelsea, for joining us.
4: Yeah, thank you, Ryan.
0: Moving on from the ever-evolving social media landscape to the re-expression of our collective social consciousness, I'm joined by Katie Geisreiter, the IPG Media Lab's Associate Director of Strategy. Welcome back to the show, Katie.
3: Hello, Ryan.
0: So to kick things off, can you please provide our listeners with a brief overview on what we mean when we say monoculture revival?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So... You know, when we think about culture and how it's kind of evolved over the past couple of years, we've seen a lot of fragmentation. The way that that changed in 2023 with the rise of stuff like Barbenheimer, you can think of the Taylor Mm -hmm. Swift and Beyonce tours. We have seen this resurgence in these sort of big events that capture everyone's attention and really everyone's sort of focusing on the same things, which is a marked difference from the sort of niche content. It just really reflects a shift from individualized, more niche content that we've seen over the past couple of years with the rise of tiktok toward mass content cultural moments that are really shared uh, amongst everyone
0: i know you mentioned a couple of examples like barbenheimer which if you were living under a rock was the double feature of the barbie movie and oppenheimer and you know the beyonce and taylor swift insanity that is going on these days are there any other good examples of events of this ilk like what what does it mean to create this you know mass consciousness
3: basically grounding and offline experiences, right? Like you're able to form community in physical spaces, going to the movies, going to Mm -hmm. a show, whatever, and then the sort of residual effects of that. That's what I think has made, made those events really particularly powerful. Obviously not every single brand can have that kind of anchor in an offline community, so other brands that have done this really successfully, Duolingo, that's our sort of perennial favorite when we talk about brands doing cultural sort of marketing really well. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that, you, to, to think about girl dinner now is like, oh, what a nice trend from so long ago. But Popeyes jumped on that so quickly. So there are a couple of, you know, there, there are these brands that are really attuned to what's happening um, mm. in culture within their kind of category and are responding very quickly to those and, and, you know, inventing new products or whatever. So those that kind of quick response is, is really key. And that's where we see a lot of success.
0: And do you think brands can manufacture these moments themselves, or do you think it's incumbent on them to kind of keep their fingers on the proverbial pulse of culture to determine when's best to insert their brand message into, you know, the discourse?
3: You can so clearly tell when a brand is trying to force a cultural moment, (laughs) um, based around their brand. Like, yeah, that would be great and convenient for every brand to have a Barbenheimer level cultural moment, but Mm -hmm. it comes off as so deeply inauthentic and just grating to particularly younger consumers who all they they're really craving authenticity so the kind of key thing is listening to listening to your consumer understand who your audience is and see what they're talking about the the way that they talk to each other the kind of communities they're in their you know adjacent brands that they're interested in and basically follow their lead
0: So we've talked about some of the more fun things like the movie mashups, moving monoculture, like Barbenheimer and Saw Patrol. But I want to move over to the more sinister side of this trend and talk about the concept of funflation.
3: So when we think about funflation, we're talking about the increase in cost in these live events, like Mm. going to shows, you know, whether that's a concert or a movie or whatever. It's really just referring to the rising cost of various leisure activities and experiences.
0: So funflation is obviously taking a toll on the accessibility of some of these events. Do you think that it's leading to more middle ground versions of experiences? So for example, that cost of a dopamine hit to go see the Taylor Swift concert live might be out of the price point of a certain consumers that they would go see it in theaters or potentially stream it through OTT. Do you think we're going to see more variance in delivery of types of experience because of this funflation?
3: Yeah, definitely. As uh, live events like again the Taylor Swift Eras Tour, Beyonce, etc., become more out of reach for people, whether that's you know for financial reasons or even physical reality reasons, like you're not <laughs> near a tour stop, yeah. we'll and see we'll we'll start to see more of this middle class of experiences arise. Again, that's why we see Taylor Swift releasing the Eras. In theaters, Beyonce's doing the same thing. Bands and musicians have introduced some hybrid live experiences that tries to replicate the sort of live arena experience. We'll definitely start to see more of those.
0: What's ultimately instigating this revival in the monoculture is the collective community's desire to go out and experience things live together once again even though we're existing in disparate online silos we have this uh, innate desire to go out and interact in person once more which is ultimately driving up the price of these experiences and leading to funflation and ultimately creating this new middle ground of experiences that are permeating both the physical and digital layers so I think ultimately going forward we're going to start seeing uh, a lot more different tiers of events that uh, ultimately drive to the same shared social experience. So speaking of the monoculture, one device that is sure to be the center of conversation in 2024 is the Apple Vision Pro, which leads us into our next topic, which is the dawn of spatial computing and immersive tech. Next on the mic is the labs SVP and managing director and uh floor nine regular, our fearless leader, Adam Simon. Adam, welcome to the pod as always. Thanks Ryan. Yeah. So. Penny, for your thoughts on Apple's Vision Pro. I know this is not something we've discussed this year. I obviously jest, but do you have any fresh perspective to offer on the matter? Any updates on expected launch time or anything like that? Yeah. I mean, I think
5: this is um, probably the sort of most hotly anticipated uh, announcement coming out of uh, our big uh, tech platforms in the first half of the year. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything that I'm reading and hearing about suggests that it will be actually quite early in the year. We're thinking probably a late January, early February uh, event to sort of go into some more detail about the product itself, probably show off some content partnerships, which I want to come back to in a minute. And then also some. Set the sort of final date for launch and final pricing and all of that information. So I think you know this is something that is going to be you know sort of hot on the heels of CES and kicking off the start of 2024. I think that obviously a lot of this year has been dominated by generative AI, as Tom has uh, talked about uh, previously on this episode. Right. I do think that just because of Apple's involvement in this space, we're going to spend a lot of next year talking about spatial computing, VR and AR, and other Mm. immersive experiences that scale all the way from the things that you're doing in your home with this device and with similar devices like the uh, MetaQuest 3 up to those sort of hybrid uh, events uh, that we've sort of been uh, referencing several times
0: throughout the podcast. Mm. And now you talked about that early or late January launch for the Vision Pro, potentially. They're not going to be at CES. They'll do something standalone and launch it separately, right? Yeah, correct. Apple has uh, basically a zero presence at CES every
3: Mm -hmm. year.
5: Other big tech companies like Google tend to have a pretty light presence, mostly focused on the smart home. Out of the major tech companies, Amazon is is really the only one who goes full bore on CES Mm -hmm. every year.
0: So reeling it back into Apple's event, you talked about some of those content partnerships. Do you think that some of what they're going to be demonstrating in that event in late January?
5: Yeah. So I think one of the things that is important about Vision Pro, if you haven't really been or only half paying attention to the sort of drips and drabs of of, uh, press that have been coming out about it, it does seem like Apple is really focused on cracking open the use cases uh, beyond gaming, which historically has been really the, the place that everybody can sort of generate some interest in headset devices. Obviously, we have things like Sony's PSVR products, but Meta, Quest, obviously, you know, Meta has these ambitions uh, around the metaverse and people using VR headsets for work and collaboration and productivity. Mm -hmm. Those tools are really interesting, but they've not really caught on with the general populace. Apple is launching the Vision Pro first and foremost as a general computing device. It's closer to a Mac or an iPad than it is to an Apple TV, for example, Mm. um, where which is focused entirely on content consumption. But I do think so they they are also pushing sort of the, the productivity and creativity angles. But I do think an early use case for Vision Pro, based on all of the the press who have had access to the device so far, is really going to be making it sort of the best device in your home for consuming video content, and especially spatial video content. There was a recent update to iOS that allows the iPhone 15 Pro, the latest iPhone Pro devices to capture spatial video directly um, using Mm -hmm. your iPhone. And from everything that we've heard, from everybody who's actually had this experience of being able to capture their own video on their iPhone and then watch that spatial video in the Vision Pro, it's absolutely mind blowing. (laughs) People are talking about like watching videos of their kids that they shot just a few hours ago and like starting to cry because it feels so realistic. And that's multiple people have said that. Like if if one person says that, okay, they're having an emotional day. (laughs) Multiple (laughs) journalists have talked about things like that. So I think obviously, you know, none of us, uh, unfortunately have have had uh, been able to experience the device firsthand. I think that we obviously will try to get our hands on one early uh, as soon as we can. But I think that we are hitting a moment where Vision Pro might be the device, even though it's going to be very expensive, it's going to take a long time to become sort of a mass market platform because of how expensive it is. And also the production limits on some of the components that go into the device because it is so high end. I do think we might be at the beginning of a tipping point into seeing... Um, Our content start to, our video content start to to evolve beyond 4K, which is really mm-hmm. where we've been, obviously, for, for a while now. There have been folks trying to push 8K. 8K content was not super available. I think Apple is sort of putting a stake in the ground and saying we think that more important than 8K is actually spatial video and video that has some depth quality to it. I suspect that at the the, the vision Pro event that we, we will probably see in late January or early February we're gonna see some obviously Apple TV plus probably make some announcements mm-hmm. around their content being available in spatial video. I suspect they will also have some uh, other studios um, on stage, likely Disney, likely some others I think to show off you know their content in, in spatial video as
1: well.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it'll be inevitable that the first wave of devices sells out, but how do they ultimately overcome that adoption hurdle in that first instance? Like, is it the price point coming down? Is it a change in the form factor? Is it these new kinds of content with spatial video? What do you think is that major turning point that'll make it more accessible to the public?
5: I think it's going to be a mix of all of those things. I Mm -hmm. think that it is an expensive device, but again, if you think about it as a, as a, potential replacement eventually, I think not on day one, but maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, on year two or year three of an eventual replacement for your Mac, that uh, $3,000 price point starts to sound a lot more palatable because there are plenty of people who spend that much money on a Mac. But I think it's going to be bringing that price down, which we know they're focused on. It's going to be getting that price, you know, chipping away at it slowly and slowly so that eventually it becomes more and more accessible. But I also think it's about the content partnerships. Multiple press demos featured things like a recording of an Alicia Keys concert, multiple sporting events where it feels like you were sitting courtside in an NBA game. There are lots of reporters, lots of people who have actually used the device, say, they are more than willing to pay about three thousand dollars because it gives them the equivalent feeling of being, you know, courtside at, at a game mm. that they really care about. So I think those content partnerships are actually super important for Apple. Um, certainly, sports and live events—if they can line up a few marquee content providers in the sports and live event space i think that for a lot of people that will justify the cost of it because as uh, the course of the year has progressed we've seen live events just get more and more expensive if you're yep. going to taylor swift or beyonce you're shelling out a lot of money to do that. And not everybody can afford, you know, afford that, obviously. Not everybody can afford to travel to go to these shows if you don't live in one of the areas where the tour is coming. And I do think that Apple will eventually be positioning Vision Pro as the best way to experience those kinds of events at home.
0: Right, they could be the new middle class of experiences that Katie was alluding to. Middle high.
5: Yeah, middle high is what I would say. I, I do think that, you know, what Katie was talking about and sort of referencing were things like the sphere and Cosm mm-hmm. that are giving... Cosm is, is basically taking that spatial video content and projecting it onto a big curved 8K immersive display interesting. In, in, a, in, in an arena venue. I think that that's an interesting... T- tactic. I would sort of say that's the middle ground. Is mm. go. You're still going to someplace. You're having the fan experience with other fans, and maybe you're watching the game live also. So that you know, obviously for sports, that's super important. Yep. And Vision Pro is going to be the best way to watch it at home, which is going to be significantly better than watching it on your your flat TV, sure. even if you have a, an amazing television. You know. Um, and I-, I think we're the interesting thing to me is that we're seeing sort of both the at home experience getting better and this new sort of middle class of events that is not quite as good as seeing, you know, seeing the game live or being Mm -hmm. in the front row at a Beyonce concert, but is going to give you that fan experience that you're not going to get at home. And I think, seeing both of those things sort of coming to market around the same time is really interesting to me. And I think it will, if they both are successful, obviously, we'll have to wait and see, it's going to be, you know, a few years until we'll see how these bets play out. But Mm -hmm. if those are both successful, it's also going to have an impact on transforming that live in person high end experience as well.
0: For sure. So we've definitely spent a few words talking about Vision Pro, and I know you've alluded to MetaQuest headsets, and I think that both of those experiences are like largely tethered to your home or like one physical location. I kind of want to pivot the conversation to talk about some of these other wearables that we're seeing that are introduced this like new digital reality. So like the Meta and Ray-Ban partnership and the Humane pin, do you have any thoughts on any of either of those and whether or not this uh, introduction of new form factors is going to move us more to towards those use cases? Yeah, I mean, look, everybody, every tech company
5: is working on glasses that can overlay augmented reality content in front of you, but that are mm. the size of normal sunglasses or, or prescription glasses. That is the holy grail of sort of this thread of technology. We're not there yet, no one can do it. <laughs> <laughs> if the Vision Pro could look like a normal pair of sunglasses, it absolutely would, but that <laughs> right. technology is not small and light enough yet. So I think like the the Meta and Ray-Ban partnership is interesting. They're coming at it from a different angle by starting from the low end and starting to add more and more stuff onto glasses that are already basically, you know, look like normal sunglasses, cameras, microphones, things like that. Those could potentially be useful in their own right but it's a little bit of a different track than I think where Apple and Meta are going with their headsets. Those headsets, I think they're hope, both companies are hoping that and, and planning to make them smaller and lighter so that maybe when we get to the 10th version, 10 years from now, when we get to the 10th version of the Vision Pro in 2034, maybe it will be something small and light enough with a battery that's good enough that you can wear them outside. TBD, there's a lot of technical challenges that no one actually knows the answers to that mm. have to happen before we get there. The other side of it, the other bet that Meta is making with their ray partnership looks more like what Humane is doing, which is this idea of an AI-powered wearable device, that it. It has generative AI, to take it back to the beginning of the show and yep. Tom's segment, has that gotten good enough? Is it is it a step change that's big enough that we actually can now use it as the primary interface for computing? Is it good enough to replace Google Assistant and Siri and Alexa as a primary interface? I have a lot of questions about that. <laughs> I think that for some use cases, absolutely. But I don't think that it's quite ready today to be... Any, it's, it's not replacing anything. Humane would like you to replace your smartphone with an AI pin, but I dare anybody to do that <laughs> no, and exactly. successfully maintain any social relationships or their job. Like, yeah. some YouTuber, please go do it. Like, I want to yeah, see somebody exactly. try to, to live only with the Humane pin for a month and, like, not... Have their friends abandon them? One um, month, just one don't... week might be too much. <laughs> exactly. One day. I just don't. I just don't think that the software is there yet. That's not to say that it might not be someday. There are certainly some interesting startups uh, that are working on sort of an AI first, re- you know, replacement for a smartphone. But I suspect that that will probably ship first on a smartphone itself. Mm. I would say if you think the AI pin is interesting. Put that in your back pocket. Let's watch these these first sort of early experiments. But really, the thing to keep an eye on is one of the things that Google announced, it was sort of a footnote of their Gemini announcements, was that there was going to be a Gemini-powered version of Google Assistant
4: Mm. that will
5: only ship on Pixel phones called pixie and they haven't given a time frame the rumors are that it might ship with the pixel nine next year but i think that's more of a like they're hoping to have it ready by then i'm not sure it will be ready by then and to me that might be the actual bridge moment where if that software is actually good enough to be your primary interface on on your pixel phone, you can always because it's on a phone, you can always fall back to your normal use of apps, which I think is the thing that the humane pin is and, and the, the meta uh, rebounds are lacking, is mm-hmm. they don't have that fallback if it's good enough to start replacing some of your usage of normal sort of app interfaces that will be a step in the right direction and google can build from there and then eventually when it is good enough to totally replace your phone they can come out with a wearable device that you know will will can be used that way yeah. i think to me that feels more like you know, the the direction that things need to go without needing to suddenly be like, oh, shoot, all I have is my AI pin and I need to call an Uber. How do I do that? You know, like there's just all of these things that we do on our smartphones that we have apps for, that we have websites for Mm -hmm. that are just not ready to be replaced by a a voice-powered AI interface yet. Um, And I think I suspect that Google we'll we'll see obviously you know it's google but i suspect that their their work with pixie is actually going to be probably more significant and maybe mm-hmm. the bridge to a, a total the bridge sort of product to a, an all ai future
0: Yeah, so bare minimum, it seems like at least a year out before Pixie's introduced and we start moving towards that more futuristic use case of immersive AI technologies that are kind of blurring the lines between the physical and digital. But I want to rein things back into where we are today. I think we've been talking to our brands for a long time about modernizing their assets, making sure that they're in AR and VR and 3D. Is like the next thing they need to be thinking about is like, how do we film our content in spatial? Is that the like how our brands prepare for this next era?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think that the advantage of Apple coming into this space is that they kind of because of their size and their influence on culture they kind of mm. force the market to rationalize and standardize around certain things sure. so they the the announcement of vision pro is sort of corralling everybody towards more standards around 3d content i suspect that their version of spatial video will either become standard or they'll adopt you know somebody else's standard and integrate it into their spatial video standards mm-hmm. you know i I hope and i i do think that they will find a way to do this the the content that is, going to be produced for Cosm's big immersive event spaces, that that also is easily re-encoded for a Vision Pro experience. And it will also, MetaQuest will also update their software to be able to to, to play that content as well. Like, this is the the advantage of Apple coming into a space. They're, sort of gravity kind of forces everybody to uh to bend to their will in a way that sounds you know that sounds bad but for content creators it's like okay we only have one format we need to support now Mm -hmm. let's just go to go in that direction not
0: bending people to their will just bringing them into orbit
5: (laughs) exactly so and beyond just sort of the content production for these devices i think that this is also why we are are watching the Vision Pro launch closely because even though it's not going to sell in mass market numbers in year 1 it is a major new platform from Apple they have never in their history had a platform launch like this where they then turned tail and gave up on the product like i believe that that they will find a way to lower the price to make it a mass market platform in the first you know few years and it is very likely, I think, to unlock augmented reality and virtual reality for audiences that weren't using it before mm. uh, in a way that that meta just doesn't have the... Cultural cachet to be able to do really, um, and Meta will will fast follow just like we saw Google did with Android, and yep. uh, I think that that will create a nice uh, ecosystem, and we might see other players jump in the ring as well once things really get moving, and that'll create an, a nice ecosystem and a, a, a scalable audience. In and you know we'll we'll have to see you know like with any platform, I think that once millions of people have these devices, it will will really change how we use them in the same way that the smartphone did. And I think that that will start to unlock the sort of post-mobile future, mm-hmm. at least on the, the AR and VR side. And then, you know, in parallel, the AI stuff will keep developing as well. And whether those end up as two separate products, complementary products, software running on on the <laughs> other hardware, you know, I think all of that is is TBD, but I think we're seeing all of the pieces line up for finally the things that we've been talking about for years to finally start to coalesce into real markets and real scalable mainstream consumer audiences.
0: I think we've got the building blocks for the next computing paradigm ahead of us. Exactly. Well, thank you, Adam, for coming in and closing us off to talk about the dawn of spatial computing and immersive tech. Of course. Thanks for having me. That will do it for us here on Floor 9. And thank you as ever for joining us. From the IPG Media Lab family to yours, we hope that you have a very healthy and happy holiday and a prosperous new year. Find us on Twitter at IPG Lab and on Medium
2: at the IPG Media Lab. Until next time, bye-bye.